I've always been a little hesitant to play cards for anything other than for fun. Maybe it's because I'm incredibly impatient. Maybe it's because I'm the worst liar this side of Pinocchio. Or maybe it's because card games for money tend to bring out the worst in people, sometimes in a disproportionately violent way. Take the legend of Wild Bill Hickok. On August 1st, 1876, Hickok was playing poker at a saloon in the infamous Deadwood Territory out west. No, not the foul-mouthed show, but Hickok does make an appearance in it. During this time, a guy named Jack McCall, who was a far better drinker than he was a poker player, joined the game and proceeded to get soaked. Taking pity, Hickok basically told McCall that he should step out of the game until he could cover his losses, and even gave McCall some money so that he could at least buy food that day. McCall left without incident. The next day, Hickok was playing poker again. 99 times out of 100, if Wild Bill Hickok was playing poker, he was doing it in a seat facing the door. Made sense, he'd made some enemies over time. Well, this day was number 100, where the only seat was one with his back to the front door. And so Hickok played, his compulsion to gamble outweighing his typical sense of security. Unable to keep an eye on the saloon entrance, he never saw Jack McCall re-enter the saloon pistol in hand. By all eyewitness accounts, McCall raised the pistol and shouted, Damn you! Take that! Before firing right into the back of Hickok's head, killing him instantly. All this over a couple dollars worth of poker chips. What a waste. Why am I telling you this? Because more than 120 years after Wild Bill Hickok's murder, another card game over piddling money value would result in guns drawn, a team shattered, and the destruction of two professional careers. And by the end of this story, someone will be dead. Let's begin. You're listening to Surreal Sports Stories with your host, Mike Ginocchio. It's December 19th, 2009. The Washington Wizards are flying home from a disappointing loss to the Phoenix Suns. At this point in the basketball season, the Wizards are 8 wins and 17 losses. A disappointing start for any team in the NBA, but especially for a team that has been considered one of those teams to watch over the past couple of seasons. They're young, anchored by some impressive talent, and if they can get it together, they might just make for a threatening core of players. Unfortunately for them, that 8-17 and 17 start is about as good as it's going to get. The Wizards would go on to finish this season a dismal 26 wins against 56 losses. The loss to Phoenix was a blowout, exactly the kind of game you want to forget. And forget is exactly what Wizards guard Karan Butler plans to do, preferably by sleeping on the flight home. Butler is one of the key pieces to that Wizards team a sort of go-go gadget player who can play guard or forward and is flexible in his game and the type of player a coach loves to shuffle around the lineup. But it just wasn't his night in Phoenix. He only scored 10 points against the Suns, well below his season average, and right now he's being distracted from his beauty sleep by a card game going on right next to him. There were several players that were involved in this fateful on-flight card game, but we're really only going to pay attention to two of them. The first is Gilbert Arenas. Arenas, at this point in his career, is basically one of the faces of the NBA. 
Picked second to last in the 2001 NBA draft, Arenas was the type of player that experts conceded was good in college, but probably wouldn't pan out in the pros. Some even said that he would play zero minutes in the NBA before being cut. Well, that didn't exactly sit well with the young guard of the Golden State Warriors. First, Gilbert Arenas chose the number zero as his jersey number as a sort of goofy up yours to the experts who doubted him and then got to work. He averaged over 10 points a game in his rookie season for the Dismal Warriors. And then in the 2002-2003 season, he took off. He won the MVP award of the rookie sophomore All-Star game, as well as the NBA's most improved player award after averaging 18 points, four rebounds, and six assists per game as a point guard. He played well enough to receive a lot of free agent contract offers. As the story goes, Arenas reportedly flipped a coin to decide what team he'd go for. The coin apparently told him to go to the nation's capital, and Gilbert Arenas would sign a six-year, $80 million contract with the Washington Wizards. Not bad for a guy that had once been projected to play zero minutes in the big leagues. For the next three seasons, Gilbert Arenas was a star. D.C. loved him like he was one of their own, and the rest of the league fan base liked him too. He played and lived like a big, goofy kid, often cracking jokes in press conferences. He also earned the nickname Agent Zero, both for his number and for his penchant of hitting big-time clutch shots. He also gave himself the nickname of Hibachi, and honestly, I think I'll let this quote from the man himself explain the rationale behind said nickname. Quote, the Hibachi is coming to a city near you. I'm cooking chicken and shrimp, but if you want to throw a double team my way, filet mignon gets cooked too. End quote. I uh, guess he scores so hot that he's like a Hibachi chef? I don't know. You might want to workshop that one a little bit more there, Gilbert. From 2005 to 2007, Arenas was a star. He was a household name, and he was responsible for getting the Wizards to the playoffs again and again. But that was two years ago. At this point in 2009, Arenas has been on the injured list for basically the entirety of the last two seasons, dealing with a torn-up knee that he injured in the beginning of the 2007-8 season, re-aggravated in the playoffs of that season, and then struggled with his general health and effectiveness for all of the 2008-9 season. But as a sign of how much faith the organization and the fan base had in him, even the fact that he barely played in two seasons didn't stop the Wizards from re-signing him in 2008 to a new contract worth $111 million. So while he's been struggling with getting back on track as a star, he's still making star money, making strides on the court. He led the team with 22 points in that loss to Phoenix, and right now he's making for a good night of playing cards. He's pretty much at the top of the world. The same cannot be said for the other player we'll focus on from this fateful December flight. His name is Javaris Crittenden. If Gilbert Arenas had been the diamond in the rough, Javaris Crittenden had been the can't miss who actually missed. As a high school senior in 2006, he was named Georgia's Mr. Basketball, and his freshman season with Georgia Tech so impressed head coach Paul Hewitt that Hewitt encouraged Crittenden to take on a leadership role with the team, something unheard of for a college freshman. Crittenden had a very promising overall freshman year with the Yellow Jackets, the type that you build on in hopes of developing your game. But then, as befitting our gambling theme for today's episode, Crittenden bet on himself. After only one season in college, Javaris Crittenden declared for the NBA draft. This was during the somewhat controversial era of college basketball from the early to mid-2000s, 
where the NBA had mandated that players could not jump straight from high school to the draft anymore. They had to spend at least one year in college. While I'm sure the NBA hoped this would encourage players to take some time to hone their skills and maybe decide to pick up an education while they were at it, the reality is that the rule created a generation of one-and-done players who did well for a freshman season in college and then jumped to the NBA draft in hopes of striking it rich. Some, like Kevin Durant, became household names because they were so good. Others, like Javaris Crittenden, got drafted high on the promise of their potential, but like many a prospector in the 1840s sifting rivers for gold, ended with a disappointing outcome. Four years into his NBA career, Javaris Crittenden was a bust. Maybe if Crittenden had waited a year or two at Georgia Tech, he might have grown up, fine-tuned his game, and been even more solid. Maybe he wouldn't have been in the moment where he was now, on that December 19, 2009 flight. He was unfulfilled potential, unrealized dreams, and unable to change anything about that. Currently, he was injured to the point where he hadn't even played a game in the 2009-2010 season. And maybe he wouldn't be so pissed off right now at Gilbert Arenas in the middle of this card game. Karan Butler was half asleep when things started to turn. He was awoken by the voice of an irate Crittenden, who'd shouted, Hey, put the money back! Put the fucking money back! Butler, who'd been dozing, was wide awake now. He looked up to see that Javaris and Gilbert were arguing over the pot of the current hand in their card game. After hearing Crittenden angrily state his piece, Arenas responded in kind. I ain't putting shit back, Gilbert replied. Get it the way Tyson got the title. Might or fight or whatever you gotta do to get your money back. Otherwise, you ain't getting it. Arenas put his money back into his pocket. At the sight of Arenas apparently trying to back out of his bet, Crittenden lunged across the table to grab the money. Seeing this, another teammate, Antoine Jameson, the wizard center and the largest man on the team, pinned Crittenden to the table and told him to calm down. Seeing all this happening and sensing a disaster, Butler leaped into the fray, looking to defuse this tension. Hey, everybody shut the fuck up. How much was in the pot? He asked. At that point in the game, the pot was $1,100. It shouldn't be that hard to pay what you owe him, Butler told Gilbert Arenas. We all make a great living, so just pay the money. Butler's reasoning made sense. $1,100 might be a big pot of money for you and me, but that's chump change for pro athletes making the kind of money that these guys were making. Especially considering that $1,100 equates to... Oh, hold on, I'm sorry. When I try to divide 1,100 by 111 million, my calculator reads, dude, that's a rounding error. Stop being so cheap. Unfortunately, neither Crittenden nor Arenas were willing to back down. They continued to jaw with one another after the plane landed, and as players were headed to their vehicles to go home. At one point in the night, a weary Ernie Grunfield, the team president, came up to Butler and begged him to talk some sense into the two. Butler just shrugged. I did, he said, but they keep arguing. As the team rode in vehicles back to the arena, Gilbert Arenas and Javaris Crittenden kept going at it. I'll see your ass at practice and you know what I do, Gilbert reportedly said. What the fuck you mean you know what I do, replied Javaris. I play with guns, Arena said. Well, I play with guns too, Crittenden replied. The following day, 
December 20th, the Wizards had the day off. When Karan Butler walked into the locker room of De- on December 21st, he hoped that perhaps the 24 hours had cooled off Arenas and Crittenden's tempers. As soon as he entered, he knew he was wrong. There was Arenas, standing in front of his locker stalls. Butler noted wryly that once upon a time, those had been Michael Jordan's lockers. But he wasn't paying attention to the lockers. Butler was paying attention to the four guns that Arenas had on display out in front of him. Hey, MF, come pick one, Gilbert told Javaris while pointing to the weapons. I'm going to shoot your ass with one of these. Up to this point, Crittenden had been standing at his locker stall with his back to Arenas. But then he spoke. Oh, no, you don't need to shoot me with one of those, said Javaris. I've got one right here. He then turned around, pulled a pistol out of his pocket, cocked it, and pointed it at Gilbert Arenas's face. Up until this point, all of the other players had been watching this whole affair like it was some sort of bizarre macho male peacocking situation. But as soon as Crittenden cocked that pistol, it hit them all. That shit was now real. Players scrambled over each other to get the hell out of the locker room, with the last one locking the door behind him, leaving behind Javaris Crittenden, Gilbert Arenas, and Karan Butler, the only other player in the locker room. As Butler remembered later, quote, I didn't panic because I'd been through far worse, heard gunshots more times than I could count, and seen it all before. This would have been just another day on the south side of Racine, Wisconsin, end quote. Calmly, Butler talked to Crittenden. He let Javaris know that if his finger flicked that trigger finger, his entire career, and perhaps his entire life, would be over. Gone. Finished. All over $1,100 a rounding error for most of these guys' contracts. Someone outside had called 911. Flip Saunders, the head coach of the Wizards, was too frightened to come into the locker room. It was down to Karan Butler to keep the peace. As Butler spoke to Crittenden, Gilbert Arenas had the look of a man who suddenly realized that this wasn't one of his silly Agent Zero Hibachi goofball moments. There was an extremely pissed off man in front of him with a loaded gun pointed at his face, and not afraid to use it. The tension was unbearable. And then all of a sudden, Crendon lowered the weapon. Just like that, the danger was over. But the consequences were just about to begin. On Christmas Eve 2009, it was reported that the NBA was investigating a situation where Gilbert Arenas had reportedly stored unloaded firearms in the Washington Wizards locker room. This was in and of itself a big deal. DC has some of the strictest firearms regulations in the nation, and the NBA collective bargaining agreement permits players to own firearms, but not to bring them to league facilities in any capacity. The NBA released a statement in response to the report stating, quote, we're aware of the situation and are working to gain a full understanding of the facts and relevant legal issues, end quote. But if you're keeping track, this is not what actually happened. Or rather, this might have happened, but if the league was taking this seriously and the public was confused, imagine the blowback if they discovered the real drama that had unfolded in the Washington locker room. This was a precarious situation. Not only was this all, you know, an absolutely disproportionate overreaction by the players involved over a minor pot in a card game, 
but it also threatened to wreck the image overhaul that the Wizards had been trying to make for years. Prior to 1997, the Wizards had been known as, I can't make this up, the Washington Bullets. Their longtime owner, Abe Poland, eventually objected to the name, feeling it was inappropriate for the times. And some believe that he was inspired by the 1995 assassination of his friend, the then Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. And in 1997, he had the fans vote for Wizards as their team's new name. It was part of Pollen's efforts to change the culture of the team. Pollen had passed away on November 24, 2009. And now less than a month after his passing, the team was involved in a near shooting that could have gone much worse. It could have ruined everything. This was a serious situation. The type that any PR agency worth its salt, as well as legal counsel, would tell the key figures involved to shut up. Someone probably should have told that to Gilbert Arenas, though. Almost immediately after the initial report of Arenas apparently having guns in the locker room, he started talking. Perhaps he thought that being a friendly-sounding guy would help defuse the tension. First, he spoke to the Washington Times about the situation. Quote, It happened like December 10th, right after my daughter was born, Arena said. I decided I didn't want the guns in my house and around the kids anymore, so I took them to my lockbox at Verizon Center. Then like a week later, I turned them over to team security and told them to hand them over to the police because I don't want them anymore. I wouldn't have brought them to D.C. had I known the rules. After my daughter was born, I was just like, I don't need these anymore, end quote. Okay, I can see where you're going with that, man, but sometimes when you tell a story, people are naturally going to ask follow-up questions. And that's not what actually happened, but good effort, dude. Okay, that's not a devastatingly terrible mistake to make. Offering up some boilerplate, seemingly innocent excuse for what happened is like PR 101. From there, though, you gotta clam up. And Gilbert didn't give any more media interviews about the situation, so it seemed like maybe, just maybe, this would all blow over. It's not like he'd do something really stupid and open up a Twitter account a week later. One week later, Gilbert Arenas did something really stupid and opened up a Twitter account. On New Year's Eve, 2009, Arenas joined the social media scene. He had previously said that he would not tweet until he received 1 million followers. By the time of his first post on the platform, he'd received 11,000. I guess he got tired of waiting. But soon, he'd have bigger problems to worry about. On January 1st, 2010, the story of Arenas and Crittenden's standoff broke in the media. In a story written by the New York Post's Peter Vexy, the salacious scandal was revealed to the public. The anger over a gambling debt, the guns in the locker room, the foul language. Vexy also couldn't resist getting in a dig about the team's past, remarking in the opening line of his story, quote, guess they're still the bullets at heart, end quote. Dude, uncool. Crittenden, to his credit, I guess, stayed mum over the course of this entire story. Now, if someone could only have explained that to Gilbert Arenas, because over the next week after Vexy's story published, Arenas did the following. First, he sent a tweet out a few days after the story broke saying, quote, I wake up this morning and seen I was the new John Wayne, LMAO, media is too funny, end quote. And then a few days later, he tweeted out the following, quote, I understand this is serious, but if you ever met me, you know I don't do serious things. I'm a goofball. The story today don't sound goofy to me, end quote. A few days after that, 
he stood in the middle of a pregame huddle with teammates and made finger gun hand motions at said teammates. Oh, boy. That last bit finally drew the ire of the NBA front office and the notoriously judicial commissioner, David Stern. On January 6, 2010, Stern announced that Arenas was suspended indefinitely without pay until the league investigation into the locker room incident was complete. Stern, already a particularly stringent disciplinarian, noted that Arenas' action in the aftermath of the initial report led him to conclude that Arenas was, quote, not currently fit to take the court in an NBA game, end quote. He also warned that a lengthy suspension was incoming for both Arenas and Crittenden. The following week, Gilbert Arenas was charged with carrying a pistol without a license, a violation of Washington, D.C.'s gun control laws. Arenas pleaded guilty on January 15th to the felony of carrying an unlicensed pistol outside a home or business. Twelve days later, on January 27th, Arenas and Crittenden were suspended for the remainder of the season. On February 2nd, 2010, Arenas attempted to smooth things over, publishing an open editorial to the Washington Post where he apologized for his actions. Quote, I reacted badly to the aftermath of the story and made fun of inaccurate media reports, which looked as though I was making light of a serious situation. End quote. He went on to promise to be better and do better, but unfortunately for him, the damage was done. Though Arenas returned to the Wizards in time for the 2010-11 season, he only played 24 games for the team when, in the midst of a poor start, they traded him off to Orlando to play for the Magic. The following year, he was a backup guard for the Memphis Grizzlies. The year after that, he wasn't even in the NBA, attempting to hang on with the Shanghai Sharks of the Chinese Basketball Association. He only outlasted a year before being released. From the talk of D.C. to retiring in obscurity, Gilbert Arenas went from being the $111 million man to just another guy who had it all and then proceeded to toss it away over a card game worth such a small amount of money. The sad thing, all things considered, it still could have gone worse for him. You'll notice that, up until this point, I haven't talked too much about Javaris Crittenden, the other man involved in this sordid story. And I told you at the start of this episode that someone was going to die before the end of it. Gilbert Arenas at least managed to keep his nose clean enough to attempt to play basketball again. Javaris Crittenden never set foot on a basketball court again. Part of the reason was that, while both he and Arenas were suspended for the remainder of the season, Crittenden was not signed by another team because he wasn't as good as Arenas was. But another reason was because, in between playing professional basketball, Javaris Crittenden had a second life, one that would finally catch up to him. On August 26, 2011, Javaris Crittenden was arrested and charged with the murder of Julian Jones, a 22-year-old who had been shot and killed on August 19th in Atlanta. Over the next few years through trial, prosecutors painted a sordid tale. Javaris Crittenden had been a member of a gang, specifically the Crips, since before his rookie season in the NBA. On that fateful August night, he'd apparently been out looking for a rival drug dealer in Atlanta who had allegedly robbed him several days earlier. Julian Jones, who was a mother of four, was simply a tragic, innocent victim caught in the crossfire. On April 2015, Javaris Crinton pled guilty to the murder of Jones. 
As part of his plea agreement, charges against him stemming from another shooting in 2011 were summarily dropped. He was sentenced to 23 years in federal prison. This was the man who had pulled a gun on Gilbert Arenas that fateful night in December 2009. While Gilbert Arenas might have joked that the media was turning him into a John Wayne of sorts, I have to note a darkly fitting comparison between the two. For all of his tough guy persona and macho manliness, John Wayne was also something of a phony. He never served in the armed forces, despite playing numerous gunslinger types on film. And similar to Wayne's posturing, Gilbert Arenas was probably also posturing when he threatened to shoot Javaris Crittenden. If he'd known what Javaris Crittenden was allegedly already capable of, he most likely never would have dared gambling with something so preciously fragile as his own life, and over $1,100 at that too. The story ends there, and I must admit to a degree of frustration at how many what-ifs and could-have-beens are involved in this case. And there are so many things that this story reveals or makes us think about. Is this a story about how America has a disturbingly close relationship with firearms to the point that part of our national mythology is to tell the tale of Wild Bill Hickok's death in Deadwood, and a card dispute has NBA players making hundreds of thousands if not millions of dollars pointing guns at each other? Is this a story about how an aggressively capitalistic market in the early 2000s created a gold rush of young men who hoped they'd make it rich in the NBA, but due to an oversaturation of said players, so many like Javaris Crittenden flamed out and were left with clear burning resentment issues? Is it a warning not to believe in the personas public figures construct for us, as the reveal of Gilbert Arenas' gun fixation so heavily clashed with his goofy, fun-loving Agent Zero personality? Or is it that there is no lesson to be learned here, as all of this recklessness with weaponry led to the tragic, random shooting of Julian Jones? I'm not sure which of these threads are worth pulling, and I don't think it's necessarily my place to offer analysis on any of the above societal issues. But I think I can at the very least conclude with this. If you're in a card game, and you're on the hook, just pay the damn pot. Or better yet, if you're worried that you might not be able to cover it, then maybe you do well to remember the immortal words from that old movie, War Games. Sometimes, the only way to win is to not play. This has been another episode of Surreal Sports Stories. Sources for today's episode includes the New York Post, the Washington Post, ESPN.com, U.S. News, and far more. A big shout-out in particular to Karan Butler's autobiography, Tough Juice, My Journey from the Streets to the NBA, which provided some critical context for that infamous gun showdown in the Wizards' locker room. It's a good read and worth checking out. Surreal Sports Stories can be found on sites such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you listen to your shows. If you like the show, feel free to drop a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in order to help spread the word. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next time. I'm your host, Mike Ginocchio. Stay steady, y'all. <laughs>